This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers charges margin loan rates from 5.08% to 6.08%? Their clients can also earn extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. You can do it too. Join Interactive Brokers clients from more than 200 countries around the world, as well as territories to invest in stocks, options, futures, funds, and bonds globally. Minimize your costs to maximize your returns. Rate subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com slash compare. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Banks are in the tank. Bad mojo out there. The Fed and Treasury getting out the playbook. Keeping up confidence at any cost. QT turns into QE. Half of April's QT bought back last week. And our guest today is Anthony Scaramucci. You know him. And he's also the host of the Open Book Podcast. All this and much more on episode number 808 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Well, hello there. I'm back. Yes, back from a, an amazing vacation. I was in Panama and Colombia and Aruba. I saw how the cocoa or the chocolate was is grown and is harvested. It is fermented. It is dried. It is roasted and it is ground into what we know as cocoa powder. That was fun. I went to the jungles up into the mountains of northern Panama in Bocos del Toro. Unbelievable. The ship, you all want to know, I'll tell you a little bit about it. You can find out more about this, about the banks, about all the things that are happening news-wise on DH Unplugged. We talked about that this week, myself and John C. Dvorak. Uh, and you can get that over on any podcast app or any place you get your podcasts. The ship was great. The food was amazing. The James Beard cruise on the Windstar was all it was cracked up to be in terms of the culinary experience, the boat itself, ah, okay. But it was a great experience. Visited some really cool places. It was a lot of fun. But uh, I have a very special show for you today. And um, for those of you that haven't had the opportunity to really understand about what is happening with the markets right now and why the banks are going, you know, pear-shaped and the world is going crazy, well, we did, again, talk about that myself, John C. Dvorak, on this week's discussion on DHA Plugged. Um, we're not going to go into it right now. We're still trying to flush out some of it. But you know what? A lot of you are also writing me saying, hey, Andrew, because I because I, I mentioned it's my birthday, right? My birthday month. My birthday's tomorrow, Monday. This is launching on Sunday, the 19th. The 20th is my birthday. I said, during my birthday month, if you want to spend some time with me looking at your portfolio, seeing what can be done I will personally do it. All you have to do is contact me. And a lot of people have taken advantage of that. I'm telling you once again, go over to the disciplinedinvestor.com and click on any of the things say, hey, contact us, get in touch, whatever it is, and uh, schedule time. We'll we'll talk about that. So um, we have a very special guest on today, uh, someone who hasn't been on in a long time. 
and I wanted to spend as much time as possible with him. So I thought we would skip the the intro discussion because, again, we did talk about that on DH Unplugged at length, at nauseum, to be clear, on what's going on and all the shenanigans that are happening with the bank, the Fed, quantitative tightening, the fact that buying bonds, uh, basically reversing all of their quantitative tightening they did since last April, a year ago, last week. Bought $600 billion worth of bonds or so. Now, it's time that we get to our guest. And before he comes on, I want to tell you a little bit about who he is. He is founder and managing partner of Skybridge, a global alternative investment firm and founder and chairman of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and venture studio. So prior to founding Skybridge in 2005, he co-founded investment partnership Oscar Capital, which was later sold to Newberger Berman in 2001. And uh, before that, he worked in uh, private wealth management at Goldman Sachs. And in 2022, he was ranked number 47 in Cointelegraph's top 100 influencers in crypto and blockchain. In 16, he was ranked 85 in Worst Magazine Power 100. So this guy's a very smart guy and a guy with a lot of uh, a lot of backing here, a lot of um, a lot of uh, gumption as well. He's, he's really a young guy. He's done a lot of work, and he also served on President Trump's. 16-person presidential transition team, the executive committee, that is, and in 2017, briefly served as chief strategy officer of the Export-Import Bank and White House Communications Director. Well, we know that end ended. He's a native of uh, Long Island uh, in New York and holds a Bachelor of Arts in Economics from Tufts University and a Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School. Hmm. Who is it? Who could it be? Well, let's give a welcome to uh, our guest today, Anthony Scaramucci. You know all about him because we just did all of his bio and all that. And I got to tell you something, Anthony, do you know the last time that you were on the Discipline Investor Podcast, 11 years ago, almost exactly, March 2012? Been a while. Well, that was a good run for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I I, uh, I am... Uh, I'm pretty happy about that then, you know, I mean, I, I, what I would say to you is God bless, right? Yeah. That's all that, exactly. that you know, that, that means that I'm back on Yeah, and things are going to go well for me as a result of uh, being on this podcast. I, I think so. I think so. You know, listen, you're a Port Washington boy. We know that grew up in Long Island, still living in, uh, in, in, I guess North Shore, right? North Shore, Long yeah, Island. Yeah, Manhasset. I'm, I live two miles from where I grew up. My parents are still in the house that I grew up in. Wow. Um, Sort of, uh, but you know, the, the the truth be told, it's a hard place for older people to live because my mom and dad bought that house in 1962 for $16,000. Uh, the taxes on that house are over $16,000 now. And so my dad's last uh, salary before he retired was about 32000 So it just gives you a sense without a, uh, a subsidy from their kids, you know, they don't live there, you know, and that's yeah. a shame, yeah. but that's what's happened all over the North Shore of Long Island. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you got good fish in there. You got stripers and bluefish, I know. Fluke, a flounder. You got some sea bass, porgies. That's my day when I used to fish that area. You do. You've got all that. You, you, you have that. You have fluke, as you say. I mean, I mean, listen, I I love the North Shore. Uh, I learned how to water ski in Manhasset Bay. Mm -hmm. My dad had a 22-foot Chrysler. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's when Chrysler Motors was in the boat business. Can you oh, imagine this? Yeah. It was a... 1976 Chrysler, <laughs> and we had a 115 horsepower Johnson 
outboard motor. And as you know, it's a two-stroke, right? So you had to right, mix the right. oil with the with the fuel. And this is really when we were not that environmentally conscious. So uh -huh. we had gas stations right in the harbor. You know, I can't tell you the number of uh, gasoline that spilled into that harbor right. when I was a kid. Yep, yep. Good times. All right, let's talk about some other things. I want to get some other background. Uh, I, and I'm just going to hit you with this. Tell me about this reality show that you are on Special Forces. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the cool things uh, about getting my ass fired like I did was it made me famous. And so I get these different offers uh, to go on shows. I've accepted two of them. Uh, one was uh, Celebrity Big Brother. That was a huge amount of fun. Really had a great time uh, doing that. And then the second one um, was uh, uh, the Special Forces. And so basically what happened was my agent came to me and said, listen, there's going to be 16 people stuck in a tent in the Jordanian desert. Uh, there will be four special forces training people that are going to take you through the survival training that they do with the special forces teams. Uh, there'll be no plumbing. Um, the, uh, the shower will be heated by the sun from the desert and there'll be out, no outdoor plumbing or indoor plumbing. You know, you have to uh, use an outhouse to go to the bathroom and uh, the the water was in these large jugs, which was like 95 to 100 degrees. Do you want to do this? And I stupidly said yes. I oh. said yes, 100 um, percent. But I was in the tent with Mike Piazza, Danny Amendola, the two time Super Bowl winning uh, wide receiver from the Patriots. Dwight Howard, who won the NBA championship with the Lakers. Uh, there were several Olympians in there. And Dr. Drew was with us, but he left after the first day. So I was out there for six days as the oldest person in the group. Mm. I'm 59 now, but I was 58. And they were literally beating the living daylights out of me. Finally, at the end of the sixth day, I dropped out. I, uh, I didn't have the stomach for it anymore. I was just too tired. But they set me on fire. They locked me in a car, tried to drown me. at a back dive off a helicopter. Uh, I climbed a 600-foot tower with a 35-pound backpack on. And then when I got to the top, was completely out of breath because it was like 105 degrees in the stairwell. They handed me a rope, and they clipped me to a safety harness and said, okay, jump off the building and repel yourself down the building. Of course, I'd never done that before, and I'm afraid of heights, Andrew. So needless to say, I was scared shit for the entire time that I did it. Uh, and I'm glad I did it, though, because I learned a lot about myself. Um, and I, I made apply, some, but was there some good friends. pay involved in this or something? Oh yeah. No, no. They paid you very well. Oh, okay. No, 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 yeah, no, no. Right. There's there some was, redeeming value was, to this. No, no, there was, there was definitely pay involved. <laughs> yeah. I try to give the, I try to give that stuff and the things I do on cameo to charity and things like that. But mm -hmm. yes, I got paid. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it makes for an interesting life. No, you know, I, when, that, I, when that's I think true. about when I, when I think about my life, I've had the opportunity to be in the war zones with the American forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. I've had the opportunity to be on our salt carriers. I've, uh, I've been on our aircraft carriers, our submarines. And so when they offered me to do this, cause I've done so much work with the military, I was like, all right, let me uh, have this experience. My dad was in the army, uh, you know, three years, he was drafted. Two of my uncles uh, who are now deceased served in world war II. Mm. And so, you know, for me, I was like, all right, let me see if I could do this. I'll tell you, I have a lot of empathy for these people. Uh, we certainly weren't special forces, uh, the celebrities that did this, but um, get a lot of empathy for people that have to do that for a living and how hard it is to do that. Um, but you know what? 
could never have gotten that spot if I didn't get fired from Trump. So yeah, but you also like well, the limelight. I mean, I mean, if Dancing with the Stars came along, would that be something you would do? No, I, no, I wouldn't actually. Good. And, and no, I respect, primarily I, I because respect I am, I am a terrible dancer, <laughs> and if my wife saw me dancing with one of those very attractive oh. professional dancers, um, there would probably be a castration in my future. So <laughs> no, I mean. Uh, uh, being in a tent in 105 degrees in the desert, my wife has no problem with that. Yeah. Dancing with stars, I think would be an issue. Yeah. Let's talk about, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but I want to really, in the front and center of this, you have a new podcast out called Open Book. Tell me about the name first. Well, there's like a double entendre there. You know, I think I'm an open book. Uh, I answer questions honestly. Uh, I think that probably got me in trouble in the White House, frankly. I try to tell people, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, some of the things I talk about, frankly, don't even reflect well on me, but I think it's important to speak with candor and authenticity. A lot of authenticity is wanting these days. Uh, and so I think I'm an open book, but then it's also about books. I'm a big book reader and lover. Um, I've interviewed some best-selling authors, uh, Liz Hoffman, Daniel Silva, who's written the Gabriel Alon spy mm -hmm. novels, uh, Ken Follett, the award-winning English uh, nonfiction writer, uh, but then also people, you know, you know, you know, you you would recognize some of these people. You wouldn't. I've got Chris Miller coming up on Chip Wars, um, the Ads God's book by the professor Matthew Cobb, who wrote about all this genetic engineering that's coming. And so I have this eclectic interest in books and I find Books are fascinating because you've got an author and a team of people that are working on something probably for at least a year. Uh, they put it out. They have an editor. Um, they've got a message in the book. You can buy the book 10 to 15 bucks. You can read it in 10 hours and you get a year's worth of experience from the author. Charlie Munger has a great line. He says that uh, doesn't know too many super smart people that don't read. And so we're in a really attention deficit world now. We're all glued to our screens. Uh, this is about dialing into my podcast for 45 minutes and meeting an author, hearing about a great book. Um, if you if you want a really, really great book suggestion, I just interviewed James Stewart, who wrote the book Unscripted about the Sumner Redstone saga, Andrew. You cannot really? believe how crazy Sumner Redstone got towards the end of his life. Um, he built this amazing empire, this great media conglomerate, uh, but he was a super difficult guy. And he had this uh, these different sexual orientations that were um, impressive at his age. Let's just put it that way. And, I, and, 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 and what, I will, what I will say about it is the truth is always stranger than fiction. So, so to me, it was probably one of the most interesting books that I've read in the last decade, uh, and it was all true. It was all well sourced wow. and well verified. Wow. So this is the stuff I do on open book. I, I basically, you know, for $10 and 10 hours, you can learn a ton about something or somebody. And I appreciate you bringing it up. It's, it's, it's gotten off to a really strong start. And uh, the good news now is uh, captured the imagination of a lot of publishers. So I'm getting a lot of uh, advanced proofs. Um, one of the things I try to do is read the book before I actually interview the oh, author yeah. and uh, I don't want to be that guy. So if yeah, you that, listen, a lot of those guys. Yeah, no, exactly. So if you listen, I think the authors are always caught off guard that I've actually detailed, highlighted and noted their book. And I try to ask them specific questions. Um, one sort of wackadoodle detail is, you know, some of the Redstone um, 
more than likely went to a uh, fertility clinic with his girlfriend and produced a daughter with with her, which he acknowledged in his will, but never acknowledged publicly. But you know the 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 evidence is overwhelming, and it's a fascinating it's a fascinating story that James B. Stewart takes you through. So right. so listen, we're all human beings. We got our flaws, our strengths, and our weaknesses. Uh, but what a book that was. Yeah, that's cool. I've written two books, by the way, and I could tell you something. Have you written a book? I don't remember. Yeah, so I've written a few books. So since we last spoke, um, I wrote The Little Book of Hedge Funds. I wrote mm. Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole. My first book, uh, which was tied to the Wall Street 2 movie, which came out 12 years ago, uh, was called Goodbye Gordon Gecko. Right. I, um, I wrote a book. I don't know about, why that was. That was coming to me. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all good. I wrote a book about Donald Trump. Um, which did quite well. He didn't like the book because it was probably a little bit too objective. Um, I just wrote two small books about digital assets, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then, of course, uh, this uh, small uh, uh, coin called Algorand. Um, and I'm in the process of writing a book on resilience right now, hmm. um, which uh, the the working title is F me, question mark, no F you. Hmm take no prisoners and not don't care what other people think of you and just plod forward and live your life. That's I think a, it's very that's a hard, that's a hard teach, thing to do. Yeah. I think it's very important to teach young kids to do that though. You know, the, the essence of the book is that what other people think of you is none of your business. Let's get to work and don't, don't read the comments about yourself in social media. That's always, but isn't that exactly, by the way, I don't want to get too down this point on yeah. the rabbit hole here, but isn't that exactly opposite of what we do these days? I think it's the exact opposite, and I think it's hurting the kids. I think it's hurting people's self-esteem, and I think it's causing us to question ourselves. Cosmetic surgeries are up, both for men and women. Um, we're having a filtered society where we're getting to see people's lives through the filters of Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever they may be. Um, and I, I think it's creating a distortion uh, that makes it harder for people. And also, you know, listen, if you're a high-profile guy like me, most of the stories that are written about me are negative. Uh, and that's what people like to read. And so that clickbait goes right to the top. They're not going to write great stories about some of the successful investments I had, but they will write about my well-documented and high-profile failures. If you don't have the right stomach for that, that could really- Yeah, you, don't, you, don't, you won't make be another a bummer. Yeah. yeah, it'd be a bummer for you. And so I try to tell people, hey, man, you, you're if you're in the NFL, you're playing at a high- level of competition, you're going to get some concussions, right? And so that's the metaphor I use for people. And listen, I, I, um, I've enjoyed my career, the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations, even the current market environment, as difficult as it is, I enjoy the challenge of it. And I think that's the message for young people. And so uh, my publisher uh, said, hey, I think you've got that that book in you based on your life experience. Could you write it for us? And I'm in the middle of writing it right now. Yeah, I was going to say, is, is, you know, people don't, maybe some people realize that I, I wrote two books and that's it, right? It's very difficult. I found it very difficult. You know, the final, it, it's like uh, this, getting it down to begin with isn't that hard. It's the the, the tightening it up, right? Till, till that mm -hmm. last page where you put the dot yes. on and say, I'm done. And you give it away and you say, okay, just clean it up and do what mm -hmm. you got to do with it. But um, that's great. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. It's hard to write a book. I, I, I don't want to, I don't underestimate how hard it is. You know, the, the one, the one thing I will say to you, and I think you'll appreciate this, you learn more by teaching or writing 
in some cases, you know, than read it. You know, like I, I've learned more about the whole concept of resilience from doing my research for my own book, you know? Right. And so sometimes uh, it's therapeutic and uh, a learning exercise yeah, like to write a book. Yeah, yeah. So of all the guests you've had, because you've had, this you've, this podcast is new, but you've done other things. You've done what, Wall Street Week. You've done a, a variety of things, mm-hmm. right? Who, who do you, if, if, you, if you're for a moment, if you could think about it, who was one of the most interesting guests you've had on your show? Any show? That's well, a really good question. I have to think about it. You know, I, I mean, there's been so many interesting people. Uh, the first person I'm going to say is very controversial and that is uh, Roger Ailes. You know, I never had him on the show, but he bought wall street week from me and he allowed me to be the anchor for it. And we did that show on Friday nights on the Fox business channel. And I had a very good relationship with him. Now, of course he had a sordid history with the women at Fox news, um, but nationally. And uh, he was an interesting guy because he was a real old school hard ass. Uh, I don't know if you know who Naval Ravikant is, if that name sounds nope. familiar to you. Nope. Uh, but Naval Ravikant uh, is the entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. Uh, he basically is the CEO of AngelList. And so why is that important? Uh, he basically created the uh, pathway uh, for small investors to invest in early stage companies. And so he was early on Uber and Twitter and Foursquare and Open Door and, uh, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's made a fortune for himself, but he's also a philosophical writer. Um, and for those reasons, I tell you, I thought he was incredibly fascinating. And um, I think he is going to continue to impress us with what he thinks about and how he he speaks. And so anytime I can um, get him on my podcast, my show, I interviewed him on Wall Street Week, I try to do that. Yeah, you know this guy, Balajay? Balajay? Yeah, yeah, he was at my conference uh, um, last year, uh, November, sorry, September of 2022. He's actually from Long Island like us. Is he's he? from Merrick. Oh. Yeah, he's from Merrick. He lives in Singapore now. That guy could talk. And Balajay is uh, basically a proponent of the decentralized state. He sort of feels like these uh, these governments are in failure mode, and it may be better to have a uh, you know decentralized mechanisms and checks and balances that you can get over the blockchain to sort of cure things. Right. Um, you Fa- know, fascinating guy. Uh, fascinating guy. Yeah, and I and I and I tell you, he is a brilliant guy. I mean, he that is guy could talk, and his, his his use of the language is beautiful. I I find. Yeah. You know, just yeah, the way no, he talks yeah. is very engaging and it's almost hypnotic. Mm-hmm. So let's, mm-hmm. l- let me let me talk about a few things what's going on in the news these days, okay? Yeah, let's do let's it. Let's talk about the banks in general, the big big picture here. This is a big discussion for some reason, big argument, whether or not we can call it a bailout, because God forbid we use the word bailout. Uh, it seems that the government is implicitly or explicitly or somehow backing all the deposits of a few different banks. And... Uh, you know, that, that's kind of interesting. I'm thinking, well, what the hell is the point of the limitation on the FDIC then? Right? The FDIC is going to come in. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I can only give you my opinion, which is uh, reasonably informed. And I don't want to be the Monday morning quarterback because my experience in the government 
has changed my view of being a Monday morning quarterback because these decisions are so hard uh, and you have such little information. It's not like Hollywood where you're in the situation room and you know everything and everything goes well and there's a perfect Hollywood ending. You know, there was a 60% chance bin Laden was in that house. Uh, President Obama had to make that decision. Uh, the Federal Reserve has a, access to a lot of information, but they're not omniscient. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they acted in a well-intentioned way during the crisis, the pandemic, to induct money into the money supply to try to help people from losing their jobs or their homes or their businesses. Uh, it caused inflation, which I think the modern monetary theorists got wrong, uh, but the classical economic people sort of knew was going to happen. Um, and the Fed knows, and I think you know this, and guys like Naval Ravikant know this, that there's so much new technology coming on. And what is technology is primarily deflationary. It's primarily disinflationary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you buy your flat screen for $5,000 in 2005 and $500 today, yet it's an infinitely better flat screen. Right. Um, you know, and I can give you one example after the next. Uh, we're doing a Zoom call. I didn't fly to your office in South Florida to do this. Right. Um, and so we're saving money there. I was up at 3 a.m. this morning. I uh, had a paid speaking engagement in Dubai, oh. uh, eight-hour time difference. It was 11 a.m. there. Uh, but because of Zoom, I had a very effective speech. Hmm. My point being is that technology is by and large disinflationary. The Fed thought that there was enough onboarding of technology that the inflation would be transitory. And so all of that was well intentions. What they got wrong is – and this is sort of a weird thing to say, but this is sort of the butterfly effect in our society. The Fed got wrong the number of hospital beds in China. And so well, what the hell does that have to do with anything? Yeah, well, yeah, let, me yeah. tell you, let me tell you what it is. They, they locked that country down because they knew because of comorbidities and an aging population, if they left the country in an unlocked position, you would have had a situation where those hospitals in Asia, in China, would have been overwhelmed and they couldn't afford that. And so they locked it down longer than the Fed would have anticipated, which caused a lag in the reconnection of the supply chain. So the inflation lasted longer. They went into the position to start raising rates. And again, very well intentioned. I'm not being critical, just being observational. Uh, but one of the game theory outcomes of raising those rates is these companies have lots of treasuries on. Uh, they were told after 2008 they needed to hold liquid treasuries on their balance sheets in the event that there were bank runs. Well, you raise rates like that. Some of these guys didn't hedge. Now, you can Monday morning quarterback them and tell them they got that wrong. But the Fed also provided them guidance in October, November of 2021 saying they weren't going to hike rates. Right. Hmm. So now the rates get hiked. Right, yep. Yep. The treasuries go down. Uh, people are looking at the balance sheet saying, oh, my God, there's tens of billions of dollars of losses. I mean, they're not crystallized losses, but they're there, at least mark to market. Let me get out of this bank or let me get out of that bank. And if you don't backstop that, you'll have a absolute collapse of the regional banking system. You'll be left with two or three banks in the country. I don't know if anybody wants that. Mm -hmm. And remember, uh, whether you like regional banks, don't like regional banks, they are the lifeblood. They are the circulatory system of American small businesses. 
And I've been at this a long time. Where do we get our job growth? We get our job growth from small and medium-sized businesses. So you got to have that blood system, that circulatory system of capitalism known as the regional banking system to be vibrant. And you got to have people have confidence in it. And so the confidence is getting shaken right now. And I think it's going to be a while. I don't think it, I don't think this gets resolved overnight. Yep. Let me take a quick break. And then we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about a little thought exercise I want to do with you. And of course I got to bring up Bitcoin. So let's uh, do that. You got it. All right, let's take a minute. Let's talk about interactive brokers because interactive brokers allows you to access a vast selection of global fixed income securities through their interactive brokers bond marketplace. Now, what you could do is you could search their deep availability of over 1 million bonds globally. IBR, IBKR, as we call it, interactive brokers, has no markups or built-in spreads and low, fully transparent commissions on bonds. IBKR also displays the highest bids and lowest offers received from the electronic venues they access. In addition, Clients can interact with each other by placing bids and offers online to execute their trades. So you get transparency, you have the ability to communicate, you have just an incredible selection of bonds. I want you to learn more at ibkr.com slash bonds. All right, we're back with Anthony Scaramucci. I want to, we were left off on the idea of, you know, hey, is this over or not? So, so what you're saying is it's not a seven-day wonder. Is that what you're saying? This whole potential collapse, there may be collateral damage. And by the way, what I've explained to people is this. It, these things don't just happen and go away. It's like the pandemic. We thought, oh, if you remember, oh, it's here. It's only going to be here for a little while. There's only three people in the country that have it. Don't worry about it. And then it was fine for a few days. We all felt better about it. Then I was like, oh, my God, what's really going on? Um, so this whole banking thing, even though it's being, we'll say backstop, not bailout. I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a sleight of hand bailout, by the way. That's my opinion. So it doesn't look like the government's or the feds bailing them out so that we could see some further confidence that there is plenty of money still in the private sector. And those private sectors are also coming in on top of the fact that we're not using taxpayer money, but FDIC, do you think there's more to go in this? It's a really confusing situation. So let me state the facts. People are not going to like this. And then we can talk about what they're going to do politically. But the facts are uh, the banking system has never fully healed from the global financial crisis. The facts are that we got used to easy credit in the system. And so you now have almost like a addiction withdrawal problem with the rates going up. And so if you do what Joe Biden suggested on Monday, zero out the management teams, zero out the equity, I understand that you want to punish these people because you had Occupy Wall Street last time when you didn't punish them. But then I think you're creating a whole series of other negative consequences that you have to think about. You, you want, and people don't want to hear this, but you want to have a vibrant, well-motivated shareholder base management team, executive management team in these regional banks. And, you know, they're at the mercy of that pandemic as well. This is a side effect of that pandemic. And so my rhetorical question is, what is the government actually for? Uh, you tell me if it's for virtue signaling and yes. transgender yes. bathrooms yes. and things like yes. that, then, <laughs> yes. then, you know, okay, then, then we've gone in a different direction. But if it's for 
keeping people safe and helping people grow their families and prosperity and health and, you know, sort of be the referee for people um, because we have proclivities towards greed, well, then the right thing to do is not to zero out these banks and not to do that, but to come up with maybe a bolstering of the FDIC system where instead of having $250,000 guarantees, you have $10 million guarantees. You make the banks pay a little more in premium for that. Maybe they have to reserve a little more for that, but you allow for the free market nature of that system to continue so that we can further our economic efficiency. So, so, but, you know, that's probably not going to happen. So Andrew, what do I think happens is they're going to be on a jihad to punish executive teams that have had losses here as a result of the interest rate rise and a result of the pandemic. And they're going to want to give those scalps to the radical left and the radical left will be chanting that that's great. But now you have really damaged the regional banking system. And then lo and behold, you're going to have to fix that down the road. So I would rather just tell the American people the truth. They won't like hearing it. Um, But this is what you're going to need to do to keep the system going. And some people will cry foul to it or say that it's unfair uh, but unfortunately, as John Kennedy said, and many people said before him, life is unfair. Um, we have to deal with the world the way it is, not the way we want it to be. The problem is, Anthony, that there's a lack of ability. Uh, it's, it's very simple, in my opinion. It seems to be there's a, maybe a generational issue or maybe it's just a, a totality issue that we've forgotten math. It seems like there's just some some absence of ability to do base, basic uh, uh, mathematical equations to understand things like fundamentals and long-term implications of a calculation. You follow what I'm saying? It's just, there's like a, just a whole bunch of stupid out there. Maybe I'm pushing too hard. Yeah. So I always get in trouble for this. So I, I, I agree with you. I think that our generation, my generation, because I'm the last of the baby boomers, has failed the country. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the political class of baby boomers overpromised, they underdelivered, they overborrowed, uh, they took the national treasure and they squandered it. Uh, they're now going to saddle a younger generation of Americans with thirty-five to forty trillion dollars of debt, unyielding, hard to fiscally manage entitlement programs. Uh, There's been no restructuring. There's no pain. uh, There's nothing but free money floating around. And I think it's going to have a long-term disastrous consequence. And it already has, because if you look at what's happened over the last 30 years, wages really have not, uh, inflation adjusted wages have really not gone up. And so now you're saying to yourself, okay, now what? Well, people are mad. Uh, The people that I grew up with, uh, you know, uh, my dad was a crane operator. I grew up in a na- neighborhood where there were sheetrock installers, plumbers, clammers, uh, all had good livings, uh, all had a healthy blue collar lifestyle uh, resoundingly in the middle class. I would never say I grew up poor because I didn't. But here you go. You know, you're, 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 that group of people is now at the poverty line and we've crushed their wages. And so they're disaffecting from the system. They go for people like Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump because they're avatars of their anger. Um, avatars, wait a minute. I love that. Avatars of their anger. Anger. Yeah. I love that. Donald Trump is a symbol. He's going to piss on the media, the political establishment, the business establishment, you know, uh, those rantings and ravings, the medical establishment. Uh, People are happy about that. 
but I don't think that's great for us just to be totally candid. No, you I know, I, I, I think we, we need to rebuild that system and restore the promise of the American middle class. So that's going to uh, require a reshoring of manufacturing. It's going to require better education, better jobs training. It's going to require a 15 year plan to right size the entitlement programs and the deficit spending. It may even require a re-engineering of our currency because uh, people are losing confidence. And so all of those things um, nobody wants to talk about because we've got tribal leaders, tribal political leaders that sit in their own tribe. They gerrymander out of their congressional districts, their enemies. Mm. Um, and so they've liquidated that that middle of the country, yet follow this closely, the there are two political blocks that we should talk about. One is the 41% of the voters that are registered. And I can tell you about a political block where there's 141 million people in that block and they vote the same way mm -hmm. in every single election. You know who those people are, Andrew? Uh, is it, is it, it's not, it's not a uh, political side. It's a, it's a, is it a, um, <clears throat> uh, I have no idea. Is it is it a specific? No, there's 140. There's 140 million registered voters that don't vote. Oh, they don't. We vote have less them. than yeah. we have less than 50 yeah. percent voter participation. Right. So right, right. I just want to think about it. they vote the same way every time, right? Because yeah. they don't vote. <laughs> yeah, no vote, zero. Right. Trick and, question. And, and so, yeah, but I mean, uh, I, I said it that way to be a little bit provocative because mm -hmm. we have to think about that group. Imagine an entrepreneurial po politician that could inspire that group. That's a pretty powerful group. If you could say, hey, you've disaffected from the system, you're apathetic to voting, uh, these current tribal politicians want you to be that way, I would like you not to be that way. Here's the reason why, and here's a plan to rebuild, restore, renew America. And if you want to give me a chance, you know, don't stay home on Tuesday of Election Day. Mm -hmm. come, come and vote. And, you know, that could happen. But we I mean, need somebody like right? my friend, uh, my old friend, Ron Kestenbaum. When I worked in Bayside, Queens, mm -hmm. uh, off of Northern Boulevard, uh, one of my first jobs, you had to do cold calling. And Ron would cold call all day. This guy would cold call and he would, unbelievable, because you heard what happened. He sat right across from me. I was a young kid. I was like 22. He sat right, mm -hmm. right across from me and he says, I hear him say, I hear the other person say, I'm not interested. He says, I have a program specifically for people that are not interested. Can I see you next Thursday at two or Wednesday at, at three? And you got appointments mm -hmm. left and right. You need somebody that has some way of, yeah. like well, you, you said. Go. I mean, there you, there, there, there you go. I mean, you just you're 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 bringing it. You know, you're bringing the heat. My 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 worry, and is that this apathy continues. And my worry is that this equivocation from the political leadership continues. And we're sitting here with a fifty trillion dollar deficit, a sixty trillion dollar deficit. And U.S. GDP, you know, we're all less worried about the deficit if it's a small percentage of U.S. GDP, you know, but it's becoming, a, it's going to become a problem if it goes to 2x U.S. GDP. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be a problem. Right. You know? So, so let me just back up. First of all, I was thinking about the clamming boats. You're talking about those, those, those flat gray boats with a little bubble in the back for driving? Yeah, exactly. Love, love those. Love yeah, those. my I got two of my cousins are on the on Oyster Bay, hot and cold weather, clamming, and the environment and the and the 
Obviously, the global warming has impacted that. There are less clams today than there were 30 years ago, and there are no lobsters in the waters around Port Washington, really? Oyster Bay, Ugh. Huntington. When I was a kid, the waters were cold enough for lobster. They're not anymore. Yeah, we have the same problem down here fishing. I mean, do a lot of fishing out here and sailfish a lot. Not really doing well this season. Let's talk about Bitcoin because I know that's something that you have embraced and more than embraced. You have really hooked on to pretty substantially. And uh, some of the things that you're talking about obviously have um, this going on and, and, and with regard to r reasoning why you like Bitcoin. Are you, what, what camp of Bitcoin are you in, in terms of the alt from a, uh, we'll say a, a, alternative from government oversight, currency, sovereignty, and things of that nature? Or are you on the scarcity factor point or maybe both? I don't know. Uh, really, really good question. I mean, so, you know, I have looked at this. I wrote a book about it. Um, you now have a technology that will allow you to keep a transparent and distributed ledger of an exchange of value. And if you really understand money and the concepts behind money, what is money? Money is ultimately a spreadsheet. I could have a piece of paper in my hand. You and I both know that from a philosophical perspective, it's worthless, but I hand it to you and you like it. You're going to go buy pizza with it or whatever. And we have this trust that that is of value to each other, but we know it's just, you know, two and a half by, you know, four inches piece of uh, fabric. It's not paper, but you know what I mean? A hundred dollar bill. We, we both like it. And so when people say to me, well, Bitcoin has no value, does the U.S. dollar technically have any value? The answer is it does because we believe it to have value. Mm -hmm. Same thing with gold. Well, gold, it's a hard asset. Okay, what do you do with it? 5% of gold's uh, price is for manufacturing. All the rest of it is perceived store of value. So, so what does Satoshi Nakamoto say? We now have the technical capability to create an airtight, ledger, just fully distributed, where we can keep track of the value exchange. So if I have $100 on me, that's my asset. I give it to you. My assets go down, your assets go up. Well, we can do that now in sort of a technically pure way. And when you really understand the magnitude of that, and then you were mentioning Balaji, he's a huge uh, um, Bitcoin Disciple, when you really understand the magnitude of that, you have created a system that really can't be infected by politicians or policymakers. And so if you read Safaday and Amos's book, The Bitcoin Standard, you now have something that you can use that nobody can infiltrate with inflation or nobody can on a whim decide to go directionally based on what's happening in the political realm. And so he said, Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamoto, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, I don't have the time to explain this to you. If you don't get it, I'm sorry, but this may catch on. You probably are going to want to buy some of this. Uh, I think the first coin spit out at half a cent. They're now trading at $25,000 or $26,000. Yeah, nice up right there. Nice up. And uh, it's been the greatest performing asset probably in U.S. economic history, and if you really understand it, as we debase, devalue the dollar and we have runs on the bank and we have uncertainty related to what central bankers are going to do, there will probably be more people migrating into it 
Um, and that's the that, among many other reasons, is why I like it. And so I started making a strategic investment in Bitcoin back in October, November of 2020. Uh, it shot up to 68,000. Some of that was probably can be blamed on the Fed and some exuberance. The Fed started taking money out of the system. And now it's sort of probably below where it should be trading from an intrinsic value basis. But, you know, that's what happens in these boom-bust cycles, especially when you have a central bank manipulating the currency, as we've been seeing. Uh, but I think as this gets adopted, I bought my first Bitcoin. 80 million people were owning Bitcoin. There's now over 300 million people owning Bitcoin. At the end of 2024, there'll be a billion people owning Bitcoin. There's only been 21 million coins created. I don't, I don't think this is impossible that this could be a $20 trillion asset. Gold's a $12, $15 trillion asset. Lots of inflation in the midst. That's going to go up in, in value. Um, if this is a $21 trillion asset, those coins are trading at a million dollars a coin. And my friend Kathy Wood says that will likely happen by the year 2030. So, so that's the macroeconomic case. But don't um, you a lot think, of people don't but, like but, it. The but, banks are trying, you know, the government's trying to ban it well, now. Well, that, that's an interesting point, though, that, that there's this whole, uh, when you get to really be the, um, you know, Bitcoin maximalists, we'll go that far, right? I mean, the absolutes, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's this whole thought that, oh, government's going to, you know, be able to utilize Bitcoin as their common currency. And I'm thinking, uh, somebody's missed economics class because you cannot have a, non-controlled currency in a actively um, in an active economic backdrop that is unable to be controlled because that is part of what you do to control the inflation and the 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 exports imports all the all the things that are involved in that you if you just have a universal currency each country is going to have a big problem that's the with the problem we have with the EU El Salvador's trying this uh, it's a whole different discussion what's going on there but I, I, do you think that that's really possible that there'll be an adoption by major nations of Bitcoin as their common currency? So remember, there's two billion people that are not banked. Okay, maybe two and a half billion people, and you know the the U.S. has the uh, reserve currency, and the U.S. has a banking system that's somewhat antiquated. You know, it takes five days for certain things to clear, or if I want to send money internationally could take as much as 10 days before it actually gets deposited. Uh, and we do have the technology to not do that now. Um, but I think the U.S. is taking a position. Again, we can debate the position. They're saying that they don't want Bitcoin in their midst. They've decided that it's a potential threat to that, what you just said. I would make the other argument. I would say that we need something new because they've debased the system. You know, you took a dollar, a $1971 when you took the country off of the Bretton Woods Treaty and you unclipped the U.S. dollar from gold in 1971, it was $35 per ounce of gold. Now it's like $2,000 per ounce of gold. We crushed the money. You know, $2 of $1971 now have the purchasing power of 100 $2023. So in 50 years, we just destroyed the money. And so you'd have to say to yourself, maybe we do need a new system 
And maybe that new system will impose some discipline on these people. So yeah, the problem um, is though, Anthony, they're coming in with bailout after bailout after after stimulus program and all this. The Federal Reserve, let's just kind of switch right into that because that's you know they may have a digital currency. I I, I think that's possible, and I don't really. No, that's so far off, right? We use digital currency every day, don't we? We use a visa, that digital currency to a degree. Yeah, it's based in dollars, but it's still a digitized payment system. So there's halfway there of what the hope is for the use of, uh, of, a, of a digital different than the blockchain and all that. But the Federal Reserve, maybe there's something that has to be done there to put this all in check. Maybe they're out of control. And also academics that also don't understand math, by the way, or that are just so hyped up on just making sure their own portfolios do the right thing. Remember, they were caught in, with the, with their hand in the pickle jar not too long ago, and nothing ever happened, right? Yeah. I mean, if well, you, listen, I, I if obviously— you, how, how do you grade the Fed? I obviously think that they're out of control. I mean, you know, but again, how do you bring them back into control? And listen, I don't have to be right— to the extent that Bitcoin becomes this international currency standard, I just have to be right where Bitcoin becomes a commodity, a store of value for people. Yep. And because if I'm right on that, it it could easily, it's portable, it's immutable, uh, it's digitized, it's easy to store and move around. So it could, and remember, I'm getting old now, but my children love <laughs> love this stuff yeah. and they have no problem owning a digital asset. They spend six to eight hours of their life on a screen thinking about things digitally. And so they have no problem owning a digital asset. And so what I would say to you is we could be in a situation 10 years from now where this $400 billion asset is worth 10 trillion. It's not impossible. Hmm. If that's the case, it's a $500,000 coin. And and I think people, I, I think people are remiss in thinking that it can't happen. Now I could be wrong. I have it sized right in my portfolio. If I'm wrong, but if I'm right, this will be a. And I believe it's a technological innovation. It's a delayering mechanism where we can transfer value to each other. I'm I'm going to go down and see the president of El Salvador. Uh, he sent his economic ministers to see me during the UN General Assembly meetings, and they told me that it costs expats, El Salvadoran expats that want to send money back to their mom and dads. They live in the U.S., they're unbanked, mm -hmm. got to walk into a Western Union or a MoneyGram store, and they are getting charged anywhere from 7 to 14% mm -hmm. to send their money back to El Salvador. So if they take 10 $100 bills, they give it to Western Union, Western Union keeps $100, $900 goes to mom. Well, these ministers told me a wallet-to-wallet -wallet Bitcoin transfer we're now talking about 100% of it going to mom. And they believe they'll save $400 million a year if they can implement this program just in terms of the transfer fees. And I just want you to extrapolate that over 8 billion people. That's, that's, that is the a magnitude of that. Okay, I own a restaurant. We take most of our revenues in through American Express or MasterCard or Visa. If we could do a wallet-to-wallet -wallet transfer, uh, that would be a 3% savings on each bill. We have a 15% gross margin. You would pop our restaurant's earnings by 20%. Wow. You know, you're going from 15 to 18%. You so, cook? You cook? So, so, you know, the technology is a are phenomenal you the, Are you in the kitchen or are you, what are you doing? You're just an owner. 
No, I'm just an owner. Just no, a, I, I try to take all the credit and, uh, yeah, well, naturally. Yeah. I try to take all the credit and, and, uh, you know, make other people do all the work. I have one last thing. I know we're running a little bit late here, but I want to talk about Skybridge for a second. Cause I'm very familiar with this. And I have one question that's been kind of mm, a little controversial for me and I want to hit you with it if I may. Okay. Please. Here's the deal. So Skybridge is a, a fund of funds. Uh, it's, it's a, an alternative asset structured, actually uh, one of the few, if, if, uh, very few that are structured in a way that actually can be owned within like accounts of Schwab and TD Ameritrade and things of that nature. But the bottom line here is it's a fund of funds. Uh, your management team goes out and says, hey, we want to have X amount here, X amount there. Uh, we want to use uh, credit arbitrage in 10%. We want to do um, an, a, you know, some kind of a, an option strategy uh, with covered calls. And, and, and you hire all these managers, right? That, I'm trying to, very, very big view of this, okay? Yeah. And you have all these meetings and things and you decide what you do. Well, recently you put Bitcoin in there. Okay, I'll go with that. Uh, let's call it 12% of the portfolio. I don't know exactly where it is today, but let's just make these assumptions for a second. The question I have for you is, you also have a dedicated Bitcoin fund at Skybridge, yes? I do. It seems to me that you'll never release the Bitcoin from Skybridge multi-strategy, from the Skybridge G or you know, Skybridge fund to funds, because it would really have a bad look if you were to do so on your dedicated strategy. Therefore, if I don't want to be in Bitcoin, if I didn't want to be in it, I'm kind of now stuck. Well, I mean, you could redeem from Skybridge. So you could take your money out of G. You I know, understand. I, mean, that. I, I get that. I, 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 I told people this was a three to five year bet for us. And I would have no problem cut, cutting that position uh, over the three to five years. And people that want to have Bitcoin for 10 or 20 years, they can be in our standalone Bitcoin fund. That, that's it's what I would personally not, prefer. That, I'm just saying, yeah, that's what I would prefer. Yeah, it's not, it's not going to stop me from selling the Bitcoin. But here's the thing. This could be, my again, my old age. I'm at a point in my life where um, – the things that have really worked for me have been the long-term bets. You know, I was telling somebody this morning, I bought Microsoft at age 27. I'm 59. I have a 32-year-old position wow. in Microsoft. Wow. And, you know, if I was paying close enough attention, I would have sold it during the Steve Bomber years where the stock languished for almost a decade. And people said it was dead money. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't smart enough to do that, of course. And- uh, and Sanjay came in, he exploded the growth of the company, right? Yep. And so, so my point is being in things longer, okay, or is better. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I get it. You know, and, uh, well, that's what they you say, know, the old it's, phrase, right? It's time in the market, not timing of the market. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. so that's my thing with Bitcoin. You know, people are like, well, yeah, you should have sold it at the top. I don't know the top and you don't know the top. Right? And I know this. I know this, uh, it took 10 years for my Microsoft position to get back to the high price of 2000. Yeah. Uh, it got back there sometime in 2000, late 2010. And so people would be like, well, what the hell's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you sell it? Well, look at where I am now in that stock. Yeah. You know, so I, and I try to tell people just if you stay calm, everybody is a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. <laughs> tell people if you just stay calm, and stay in good, high-quality assets, you're going to be re rewarded, yeah. you know? And so, you know, when Bitcoin crosses 100000 which it probably will over the next 12 or 13 months, it really is not going to matter whether you bought it at 68000 or 16000 
you'll be in the money. Um, and if I told you that Bitcoin was going to trade at a million dollars by 2030, is it really that big of a difference to buy it at 22,000 or 68,000? And so it's your time frame. It's the way you think about things. Um, and listen, the media hates Bitcoin. I got that. And there's guys like Charlie Munger that hate Bitcoin. I got that. Uh, but that that's where I think you, you get this opportunity creation because of all that fear and uncertainty and doubt. Yep. FUD. All right. So number one, we want people to listen to your podcast, Open Book. How do they get to that? How do they get there? Yep, it's available anywhere where there are podcasts. So like yours, it's Spotify, Apple, anywhere else that you may get your podcast or you like your podcast where you subscribe to. You can hit the subscribe button. Cool. Uh, we got some really fun ones coming up. And uh, these are great conversations with authors. And, uh, you know, like you, I like pushing people around a little bit, which makes it even more fun. Oh, I'm pushing people uh, a little bit. Well, I say that with love. I say that with love. You you, you ask really good questions, which is why you have such a popular podcast. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Anthony Scaramucci, once fired, but back, 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 and hopefully not going to be on Dancing with the Stars, but has uh, an awesome podcast, awesome insights, great background, uh, does a million things, writing a new book, uh, managing a massive, uh, what would we call that? An investment empire? It's an investment empire? Mm -hmm. Well, listen, it's a little bit smaller as a result of what happened in the last 15 months. But, you know, I love it. I think there's a big opportunity here. I'm super excited about the future. Yeah, great. I really appreciate having down uh, you on. Remember, Fort Lauderdale, fishing, big fish. Amen. And big boat. God, I got a nice boat. God bless you, man. You out. All right, Thank see you, you soon, buddy. All right. All right, God bless. Bye-bye. Right, now, that's what I call a strong interview. That was awesome. Man, I learned a lot. I love the avatars of, of their anger. And, and some of the phrases he used when we talked about the jihad to punish bank executive teams. Pretty interesting stuff um, that we talked about, I, I think, and about the books and all that. So thanks for joining me this week and every week on the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Take advantage of the fact that uh, we can spend some time together, uh, me and you together, looking at your portfolio. I'll happy, uh, happily do that with you. Again, a special offer to anybody in the month of March, my birthday. Go over to thedisciplineinvestor.com and uh, get in touch and we can make something happen. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll see you again next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.